Well, this morning we conclude Mark chapter 14. You may recall we began this journey through this very long chapter a few weeks ago. Uh, The chapter begins with the high priests deciding, okay, we've got to kill Jesus, but we've got to do it stealthily. And they didn't want to have a big uprising at the festival, so they were looking for an inside man. Of course, Judas was happy to play the part, and he ends up selling his teacher, his Lord, for about four months' wages. So the chapter opens with the religious, religious leaders making a wish, and the chapter ends with them getting it. They have Jesus in their custody. And of course, last week we saw how in the garden, Jesus shows up, and he's confronted with the white-hot blast of the wrath of God as he opens that furnace door, as he begins to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And so Jesus, as any human would, he staggers before that terrifying reality of the wrath of God. But in righteous response, he submits himself to the Father, and he becomes our intermediate, intermediary. They arrest him, and the image we're left with as, the chap- as that passage closes is of some follower of his running away naked. Not a very glorious passage. And now, verse 53 begins, they've arrested Jesus, they've transported him back down the Mount of Olives, back up the Kidron Valley, back into Jerusalem, And they've taken him to the high priest's house. And here, of course, they're going to conduct a kangaroo court. This is a mockery of justice. By their own rules, everything that happens here was illegal. By their own rules. The Sanhedrin rules required that Court cases could only take place in one of three places in Jerusalem. And I'll let you in on a secret. The high priest's house wasn't one of those places. No capital case could occur at night. No court case could occur on the eve of a major festival. And indeed, in a capital case, the verdict had to come the day after a decision had been reached, after the case had been heard. So as you see, they throw all this out the window because they're on a mission to kill Jesus. They are so blinded by their jealousy, so blinded by their hate, that single-mindedly they focus on destroying the one who could save them. So the question that's before the court, the question that's before us is, who is Jesus? And the issue in this passage is our identification with Jesus. The motif is injustice, and the theme is bearing witness. The notion of being a witness or testifying pervades this passage. Whether it's the false witnesses, whether it's Jesus testifying, or whether it's Peter denying That theme of bearing witness and identifying with Christ, 
identifying and acknowledging our association with Christ. That's the issue. It was a live issue for Mark's audience, you may recall. They were being dragged before courts, dragged before rulers, dragged before crowds to be tortured, to be killed, all because they professed faith in Christ. And of course, that was in fulfillment of what Jesus had said would happen in Mark chapter 13. But the association with Christ would be costly for Mark's original audience. And brothers and sisters, let's be honest, it's increasingly becoming true for us. Many people work in companies now where they require you to affirm practices or implicitly support practices that are wrong. Many places require you to keep your mouth shut. I know of people whose employers are not content with them to be quietly conservative or whatever you want to call it. They invade their thoughts and expect them to write down agreement. It is increasingly hostile. Even in the South, which for a long, long time was safely insulated from a lot of the wretchedness in the rest of the country. It's hard to find a college or university in the South that isn't almost as liberal as Berkeley. It's increasingly a question for us. Are you willing to bear witness to Christ? This is especially true when you are faced with injustice. And you will face injustice. We live in a world that convinces everybody they are the object and subject of injustice. A couple years ago, we had the Black Lives Matter movement start. Just yesterday, we had white nationalists marching and counter-protesters. This is a world on fire with everybody claiming to be treated wrongly. And they will treat you wrongly if you identify with Christ. I wish I could tell you it would be different. But you know how the government works? They always find a loophole. They always get you by a rule. They're never ever going to come out and just claim to be persecuting you. They'll always have a way to deny it. They will always find a way to use a loophole in their rules to make it look like what they are doing is legitimate enforcement of the law, which is what they do with Jesus here. They're trying real hard to make it look legitimate, even as they're violating their own rules. So this passage shows Jesus bearing testimony faithfully in the hot seat. No wonder Revelation 1.5 refers to Jesus as the faithful witness. When it mattered most, Jesus stood up and took the blows. He was the faithful witness. This passage shows Peter, on the other hand, not only waffling, not only caving, but denying Jesus, committing a heinous sin. And brothers and sisters, I believe this 
is included in the gospel to remind you even the strongest, even the most bold, even the most fearless among you is not immune to the temptation to try to save your own skin at whatever cost. So don't rely on your own strength. Do not fear. Do not succumb to anger. And instead, bear witness faithfully even as Christ bore witness. I think this passage talks about that. Okay? So what I want to do is walk us through the passage, and then I'll hopefully uh, drive home why this passage is trying to, or how this passage is trying to convince you to remember that you can't do it in your own strength. Okay, so verse 54 has Peter following, and he stays safely at a distance. So in verse 52, every disciple had run away. Now, apparently, they ran away. The guards, they weren't interested in Jesus' followers. They didn't, they didn't attempt a roundup mission. They simply wanted Jesus. You know, they understood the principle behind the proverb, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Okay, they weren't concerned about the disciples. All they needed to get was Jesus, okay? So they take Jesus, they're walking away, and at some point, Peter decides to stop running and to follow. And he follows at a safe distance, and he sits down among the guards, and he's warming himself. Now, some of you may want to say, well, at least he had the courage to come. Uh, actually, what this is, the, this is modeling the quintessential, uh, the quintessential coward. See, he's just interested enough to want to find out what's going on. He's one of those gawkers who drive me nuts on the highway when there's an accident on the other side of the median, you know, and they slow down just so they can see what's going on. He wants to know what's going on. But he doesn't want to be identified. He wants to stay safely hidden. He wants to stay comfortable by the fire. He doesn't sneak as close as he can. He just wants to keep eyes on what's going on. And so that brings up the question, are we living our lives in such a way that our loyalty to Christ is literally unknowable or unknown or hidden? Do we try to stay close enough so we can see what's going on while hedging our bets so we don't get identified? He's viewed as a coward for that. And so verse 54 has Peter there. And now verses 44 through the rest of the trial show Jesus being tried and how he responds to injustice. And then it goes back to Peter. So it is one of those sandwich segments. And so the focus shifts then to Jesus upon the stage. And it would have been kind of a stage. It's amazing how much ink gets spilled over how it says that, you know, he went outside or down. Or If you know architecture from that area, it would have been like this raised porch. Uh, it, would, it would have been open air with, with columns supporting a roof. It would have had a cover, so like, like a portico or something. But it wouldn't have been behind closed doors. It was open to the air, and there would have been a larger courtyard. Okay. So what I want to do is walk you through this court case because it's an absolute sham. 
And at the same time, there's a little bit of humor in it. This court case is such a sham. And the persecutors are, the prosecutors, persecutors in this place, the case, they're both. They're so desperate for a conviction that not only have they thrown out the rules, but they've resorted to just a, a silly tactic that ends up stalling out. They don't even have their ducks in a row. They think they do. They've got Jesus. He's able to put together a quorum. There's no way that in the middle of the night they got all 71 members of the Sanhedrin at his house. Okay, But they did most likely get a quorum, which would have been 23. They had the quorum there, and they had enough to render a decision on behalf of the whole group. And they had no problem getting false witnesses lined up. Think about it. It's the middle of the night. Where, where do these people come from? Well, they had them on standby. So, ah, they've got their ducks in a row, right? But they want things to appear legitimate. So they, ha- they bother with witnesses, and they have them come forward. But you and I both know that the, the fly in their ointment is that the law required for any capital conviction, you had to have two or more witnesses tell the same story. And they can't do that. No one can tell the same story. They get frustrated. In fact, uh, in verse, in verse uh, 58, 57, I should say, when it says some of them stood up, it appears to be the Sanhedrin members themselves. So these false witnesses have come forward. They can't agree on what the testimony is, what the charge is. Some of the Sanhedrin members stand up. We heard him say that he would destroy this temple. And of course, if you know, they're misquoting Jesus. He never said he would destroy the temple. He simply said that the temple would be destroyed, which is different than saying, I am going to destroy this temple. So, but even then, when they're misquoting him, they can't get their story straight. And you can sense their frustration. You can sense that they understand that they are losing momentum fast and this prosecution is going to stall out because the high priest does what he was not supposed to do. The high priest was supposed to function more like a moderator. Okay, he was keeping the rules, making sure everybody's doing the right thing, but he wasn't a part of the prosecution. And he stands up. Now, an honorable person in that culture doesn't stand up. He was to remain seated because he was arguably the second most powerful person in that country behind the Roman governor. He would stay seated, but he's so frustrated. He gets up, walks into the midst, and he starts direct questioning Jesus. And Jesus doesn't say a word. That's pretty unusual. Back then... And even now, I mean, I have kids, and as soon as one comes and starts telling their story, the other ones, I mean, I can't get them to be quiet, hardly. They, no, that's not what happened. Stop lying on me. And that's what they're used to. But Jesus kept his mouth shut. The whole time these false witnesses are speaking, the whole time this whole charade of justice is going on, Jesus is quiet. And finally, the high priest reveals that he had an idea of what people were saying. 
So you got to give him credit. He wasn't just some ivory tower guy. He, he had his, his ear to the ground. He had his finger on the pulse of the people. He knew what people were saying about Jesus, namely that he was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God. And isn't it interesting that he tries to show reverence to the name of God by not even using the name of God? He refers to God as the blessed. He tries to outwardly show conformity to the law, even as this whole thing is a charade and a rebellion against God's law. That's how sin, that's the madness that sin will cause you to descend into. But then something happens that is pretty strange. And it has scholars confused. Basically, throughout the entire book of Mark, Jesus is very hush-hush about his identity. He won't let demons talk. He only reveals who he is in private to the disciples. It's such a secret, his identity, that it's known as the messianic secret. But here, now, he gets asked directly, by the high priest, are you the Christ? And Jesus, knowing that he's now at the, at the pinnacle of his ministry, he's about to do the very thing he came to do. It's time to pull back the curtains. And he says very directly, Ego, Amy. It's a very emphatic, I this is a complete assertion of his messianic status and then he goes further just so just so the high priest isn't you know unaware just so he doesn't lose anything in translation because ego a me is also a forceful way of saying i am the name of god he goes further And this is where you can see it's almost as if Jesus knows that this case is stalling out. And in one sense, he has to throw them a bone. It's like he has to help them out so that they will be frenzied enough to have him killed. And he says, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, what does that mean? Basically, that is, he, Jesus takes the language and the allusions from Psalm 110 and Daniel 7 and combines them. That's prophetic imagery speak for, I am the Christ, and you will see me vindicated by God, and you will see me coming to judge as God's representative. And of course, that just makes them have a meltdown fit. On the one hand, the high priest is completely relieved because beforehand he couldn't have got a conviction because the the witnesses couldn't agree. But now, because Jesus himself has said it, he's thinking, hallelujah. I get my conviction because out of the horse's mouth, I got it. But at the other hand, what Jesus says is so audacious that he just causes him to fly off in fury. But there's great irony here. You are judging me, Jesus says, but the day is coming when I will be judging you. And of course, the man accuses Jesus of blasphemy, even as he is blaspheming the Son of God. And they start hitting him. 
spitting on him, covering him, demanding that he prophesy who hit him. They turn him over to the guards, and they receive him by beating up on him. We call that brutality. The rest of the world calls it par for the course. Jesus is abused, and it's included here because even as they are mocking him, saying, prophesy, what's the irony of this? Jesus had prophesied that this would happen. And so Mark wants to underscore how closely what happened to Jesus fits the prophecy of Jesus. And so if you, if you look at Matthew, uh, it shows that the full account of how it goes on is that Jesus first gets tried by Ananias, who's the father-in-law. Sort of, they sort of share co-regent high priest duties. He, he first gets tried by Ananias, then he gets handed off to Caiaphas, then the Sanhedrin sends him to Pilate, who sends him to Herod, who sends him back to Pilate, who has him killed. Okay? Mark's only concern is to show that what Jesus predicted in Mark chapter 10, and if you look at Mark chapter 10, uh, verse 33, we are going to Jerusalem, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and flog him and kill him. Okay, so Jesus specifically talks about the religious leaders rejecting him and then the Gentiles rejecting him. So in his gospel, to show that what Jesus said would happen, happened, he's concerned to show a court case in front of the Jewish leaders, and then he shows the court case in front of the Gentiles. So he, it's, he's not denying that he went to see Herod. He's just saying, look, what Jesus said would happen, happened. He was rejected by both the Jews and the Gentiles. Okay? But Jesus had prophesied the very thing would happen even as they're mocking him to prophesy. There's a whole lot of irony in life, isn't there? And so, Jesus is faithful to the end. He bears the good witness. He identifies who he is. And don't let any of these Jesus never claimed to be God folks off the hook. He answers directly. Okay? He answers directly. I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He answers in the affirmative. Now, Jesus is giving testimony in front of the most powerful court in the day, in front of the second most powerful man in the country. Now let's go back to Peter. What's he doing? He's hanging out trying to hide by a fire. And it says one of the servant girls of the high priest comes. Now, we love using servant, but almost always it's slave, okay? Understand that almost every time you see a servant being referred to in the Bible, it's a slave. This passage tries very hard to underscore that this person who comes up to Peter couldn't be more insignificant in that culture. I mean, the only way she could be more insignificant would be if she was a leper, right? But then she wouldn't even be in someone's employ. She's a slave. So already in Roman and in Hebrew society, she's a nobody. It's a she. So she has no status whatsoever there. She's ceremonial, unclean, un unclean from birth in the eyes of the Jews. 
okay? And she's a girl. When Peter's confronted by this person, many times we have the idea that it was a woman addressing him. It's a girl. So she's probably between the ages of 10 and 13. And she comes up to him, hey, you're one of them. Now, she is so insignificant. The the author, Mark, is trying to convey. Here's Jesus bearing testimony before someone who mattered. And here's Peter before someone who, I mean, he could have, this, this is bad, but in that culture, he could have slapped her in the face and told her to be quiet, and no one would have batted an eye. She was a nobody. And Peter is so filled with terror, so afraid, that even this nobody, questioning his association just, just, just casually, it causes him to have a panic attack. And he denies knowing Jesus. And she pesters him again a little bit later. And it causes him to freak out some more. And eventually the crowd is the one doing it. And so here's where it gets really ironic. All the commentators agree that when it says he's calling down curses on himself, in that culture, he would have been invoking the name of God. May God, something along the lines of, may God strike me dead if I'm lying, or something along those lines like that. And so isn't that ironic? He's violating the third commandment. He's swearing to God that he doesn't know the Son of God. It's heinous. And what drives Peter to this? He's trying to save his skin. But there's a phenomenon that happens here that happens all too often in, the, in our own present day. When someone leaves the church and they want to try to mingle, and, ident- and, they, and they don't want to identify with the church or Jesus anymore, and they want to identify with the world, the, the world can almost smell your identification with Christ. And so, in order to prove that they're not one of those churchy people anymore, they have to do everything they can to get the church smell off of them. And this is why people tend to go off the rails when they abandon Christ. They, they, they tend to go full crazy because they're trying to fit in with people who can still smell their association with Christ. That's a phenomenon that happens. The world either wants you to be completely one of them or they want to reject you. And you see that phenomenon now where you're either all in or you're rejected. Don't try to make peace with something you're not. You are one of Christ's. Bear testimony to it. Bear testimony to it. Don't deny it. Now right here, okay, we see the two dangers, the two emotional dangers that can ruin your witness as you're testifying to Christ, okay? You see the religious leaders acting with complete anger. And their anger causes them to act with complete irrationality to secure the outcome they desire. And anger will ruin your witness under pressure. You see, even the Apostle Paul succumbs to anger when he's being treated unjustly. You see it in Acts 23.3. 
The high priest has him slapped in the face. And what's Paul's initial reaction? To lash out. God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. And of course, he dials it back very promptly. But so many times when faced with injustice, our reaction is anger. And that will destroy your witness. Likewise, fear. Peter is so concerned to cover, to save himself. He wants to make sure that he makes it home alive. And of course, hasn't Jesus back in Mark chapter 8 said, Whoever is ashamed of me before men, I will be ashamed of him when I come with the glory of my Father's angels. Jesus was the faithful witness. Peter was faithless. He was so afraid that he ends up denying the one who saved him. Okay? Jesus has overcome the grave. Jesus has put all the forces of hell in subjection to him. The worst they can do is kill your body. And even that is temporary. Because believe it or not, the day is coming when your body will be raised out of the ground. Do not make Jesus look less glorious by cowering in front of nobodies to save your skin for a little while. Now, I'm supposed to you know, be, turn this on a hopeful thing and say, oh, you know, three days later is coming. Jesus, Jesus knew that this would happen, and so, you know, he, he, made it, he already took care of it for Peter, and so Peter got restored, and so it doesn't matter how bad you are, you can get restored too. That is true, but do not presume upon the grace of God. Judas was there too. Mark doesn't mention it. Judas was there. And Judas, when he sees that Jesus is condemned, he cries out because he may have betrayed his Savior, but he was still a person in God's image with a moral conscience, and he understood that he had betrayed innocent blood. And so when he sees Jesus is condemned, he cries out, throws the money, and he runs out and kills himself. The only difference between Judas and Peter quite frankly, is John 17, verses 31 through 32, which says this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers." Okay, the only difference was that Peter had been interceded for by Jesus. Peter, in a moment of fear, denies Jesus, but he does not stop associating with God's people. He stays close. And in fact, when Jesus appears to him a few days later, and as soon as he's in his boat and he recognizes that it's Jesus, he jumps out of the boat, leaving his stuff, and he, and he runs. Okay, he didn't really abandon Jesus. 
He acted foolishly. He acted rashly. He made a terrible mistake, and it's one he doesn't make the second time. Decades later, he, glo- he goes gladly to his cross for his Savior. But Peter himself, in 2 Peter 2.1, writes of the judgment that is coming to those who deny their master who bought them. The early church understood that when you deny Christ, it is a big deal. Pliny the Younger, a, a proconsul, sort of a governor-type figure, was writing to the emperor Trajan about what they do if someone gets brought in on charges of being a Christian. And what they do is they ask the person directly. If the person denies that they're a Christian, okay, prove it by offering incense to Caesar. If you do that, no harm, no foul, go your way. And they had proven, or they had decided that that was a foolproof test because no Christian, Pliny wrote, would be willing to offer incense to Caesar. So within about 70 years of this, Christians were known as those who would rather die than save their skin and burn incense to Caesar. The early church understood it was a big deal to deny Jesus. It's not just something, oh, we all do that sometimes. No, we don't. God's mercy extends to the uttermost. But do not presume upon the grace of God. You were not promised tomorrow. You were promised today. Hold fast. Hold firm. Knowing that Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, has died, has conquered, so that you too can stand before people and bear witness to the life-changing power of His blood so that you can make Him look great. Just like Polycarp, just like Irenaeus, just like old man Peter. You may be called to face injustice in this world. You may be called to bear witness under pressure. In that moment, hold fast to Jesus. Don't worry what you're going to say, because what you speak will be given to you in that moment by the Spirit. Hold fast, because Jesus has paved the way. Let's pray.